Well, good morning, friends. Uh, we're recording this message and getting it out to you later today because Zoom crashed all around the world, I guess. <clears throat> and so, uh, unfortunately, we couldn't meet face-to-face, uh, -face, as it were, at least through Zoom. So I'm um, going to preach the message and record it and um, hopefully be able to access this uh, still today. This is... Uh, May, what, May 17th. So um, if you've got a Bible with you, please turn in it to Romans chapter 11. We're going to be reading verses 11 to 24 this morning. Um, if you were with us last week, I, I mentioned that this chapter deals with the topic of God's relationship with the Jews. Now that Christ has come and the Jews rejected him for the most part. That was a subject that was very important to Paul and to many believers in the Church of Rome who were from a Jewish background. So because of that, we might wonder what this has to do with us today. Um, we're not from a Jewish background. Most of us don't mix or mingle with Jewish people very much. And so we wonder, does this have anything to say to us? Uh, but it does. Because as we're going to see, this passage is directed directly at Gentiles, which is us, non-Jewish believers. Paul's talking to us today. And there's something about God's ongoing dealings with ethnic Israel that matters to the church as a whole. So we're going to read Romans 11, uh, 11 to 24, and find out what that is. So let's hear the word of the Lord to us this morning. Paul says this, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I am speaking to you, Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. 
Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Let me just pray before going further. <clears throat> Lord, these pictures seem so distant to us. We are not tenders of an olive orchard. We are not from Jewish descent. Most of us were hearing this this morning. And so this seems far away to us and we need your help. We need the Holy Spirit to, to work now and impress it on our souls. And I thank you that you wrote it to us. You didn't write it specifically to those of Jewish ancestry, but you wrote it to us, people like believers here in North America um, for our growth. And so that we could see your glory in your character and in your kindness towards us through Jesus. So we ask you now by the Holy Spirit, open this to us. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, well, there's a hymn called God Moves in a Mysterious Way, written by William Cooper. And that title pretty much sums up how God's ways continually surprise and confuse us because they're so counterintuitive to the way we normally think. <clears throat> Scripture teaches things like this, that we gain by losing, that we get filled up by emptying ourselves, um, that we live by dying. God's ways are just counterintuitive to our natural mind, and it's only as our minds are renewed in Jesus Christ that that starts to become clear to us. It starts to make sense. And so it is with God's way of building the church. Paul says in verse 11 that through the trespass of Israel, salvation has come to the Gentiles. That means God used Israel's rejection of Jesus to bring the gospel to the world and to us. Or to say it in another way, we are saved today because someone else sinned. That's the counterintuitive way that God is building his church. Um, today and next Sunday, we're going to try to unravel this surprising path of the church's salvation. It originates within Israel. It moves out into the world. And then, in some way, it includes Israel again. And as Gentiles, this is intended to make us marvel at the grace of God and be freshly humbled that we should be included in so great of a salvation. So that's where we're going this today and next Sunday. So let's walk through the text and, and look at the surprising path of our salvation, of the church's salvation. And it begins with the situation of Israel in Paul's day. So there's some context behind what we just read. So I'll go back to some of the previous verses to see what that is. But here's, here's the immediate situation that Paul's speaking out of. He says, Israel is hardened against Christ. He's har Israel's hardened against Christ. Paul says in verses 5 and, and 7 about ethnic Israel, that there's a remnant chosen by grace, but the rest were hardened. So that means that there are some Jews who are elect, who are chosen by God's grace, 
to be rescued from their sins. They believed that Jesus is their Messiah, and through that faith, they obtained the righteousness of God. They got the perfect record of Jesus' obedience to the Father, and so they're forgiven their sins, and they're counted righteous. And Paul is one of those Jews, as are all the other apostles, who are all of Jewish descent and, and uh, religion. Um, many other believers in Rome were formerly Jews, now, now also believers, and many other people that uh, heard the gospel and were saved. But Paul says these are the minority. The rest were hardened, he says. Uh, they did not believe the gospel. They were and are still to this day trying to establish their own righteousness by law keeping and resting on their heritage as sons of Abraham. And so God has hardened them. Verse 8 says, He gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. So that means God has turned them over to their unbelief. That's the background behind verses 11 or verses 11 and following, where Paul asks, Did they stumble in order that they might fall? His question is whether or not this is how Israel's story ends. Uh, as a people hardened in unbelief in the vast majority. Um, is this a sad tale of a nation that was once the center of God's attention on earth? So like two-thirds, three-quarters of our Bible is about them as a nation and God's dealings with them. And, and this, are they just now cast aside? Are they no longer important in the big scheme of things? Did they stumble? in order that they might fall. That's what Paul's question is. And is that what the hardening is about? Is that where it ends? Well, Paul, Paul's answer is no. No, that's not where it ends. That's not what this is about. He says, by no means, God hasn't rejected his people whom he foreknew. He said back in verse two, there's more to Israel's story because in the divine plan of salvation, their hardening has a purpose. And that leads to our first observation from the passage, which has to do with the character of God. And that's this. Israel's hardening has a greater salvation purpose. That's what we learned from verses 11 to 15. Paul says, rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Their trespass means riches for the world. Their failure means riches for the Gentiles. Their rejection means the reconciliation of the world. In other words, in the mysterious ways of God, his hardening of the vast majority of Jews to the gospel has resulted in vast numbers of Gentiles, non-Jews, being saved, being reconciled to God. That's what God intended through the hardening of Israel. That's the surprising way that Jesus is building his church. The Jews stumbled in order that others may be saved. People like you and me, if you believe in Christ. Now, if that sounds like a crazy way for the Lord to build his church, you only need to look at Israel's own history and at the cross and at the record of the book of Acts in order to see that that's exactly how things work out. You might remember the story of Joseph and his brothers. 
from Genesis. Um, his brothers sold him into slavery because they hated that he was dad's favorite. About 13 years go by and Joseph becomes the vice president of Egypt and in charge of a vast grain reserve that uh, they have during the famine. His brothers come looking for food and he gives it to them and he saves all of Israel, who at that time only numbered about 70 people. And then how did Joseph describe that whole episode looking back on it? He said this in Genesis 50, 20. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. So God used the sin of some, in this case, his brothers, to bring about the salvation of many, including all of Israel at the time, all 70 of Jacob's household. So that's the same thing as what we're seeing here, Paul talking about. There was a hardening on Israel that led to the salvation of many. And that's exactly what the cross is all about, is it not? If Jesus hadn't been rejected by the Jews, he wouldn't have been handed over to the Romans and he wouldn't have been crucified. And if Jesus doesn't get crucified, then there's no atonement for sin. There's no Lamb of God to be slain to take away the sins of the world. There's no one on whom all of our guilt and all of our shame could be laid so that he could take the punishment for it instead of us. Israel had to be hardened against Jesus in order for Jesus to be crucified and for us to be saved. That's the truth of the cross. You and I couldn't be saved without the hardening of Israel. We couldn't be reconciled. And as the gospel began to be preached, after that, the continued hardening of Israel actually served to accelerate the message of the gospel into the Gentile world. And that's what we see in the book of Acts. For example, in Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas went to Antioch in Pisidia to preach the gospel. The first place they went was the synagogue because that was always their pattern. They'd go first to the Jews, their kinsmen, and bring the gospel to them. And so that was their pattern. So they'll go to the synagogue and Paul gets the floor and he delivers a message. And they're so interested that they, they want him and Barnabas to come back the next week and say it again, preach it again. So they come back next week, Paul preaches again, but this time we're told that the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict and revile Paul. So here's what Paul and Barnabas said. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. You see, the rejection of the gospel by the Jews led directly to the evangelization of the non-Jewish world. If all the Jews came to faith in that synagogue, in every synagogue, where Paul and the apostles would go, then they might have been content to just keep the message within Israel. 
in fact, the early church struggled to see Christianity as anything different from Judaism. That's why you had the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, where some believers were teaching that the Gentile converts must be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. They still couldn't grasp that a person didn't need to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. But when the Jews, by and large, rejected the gospel, it accelerated the transfer of the gospel message into the non-Jewish world. It forced the church out. And then as Gentiles are being saved, it forces them to wrestle with, what must I do to be saved? And the answer that they agreed on at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 was, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's it. They realize that salvation is accessible to all people everywhere, not just to the Jews. It wasn't just for Israel. And in our day, we could add that it is not just for Westerners. We can add that it is not just an American religion. It is not just a white religion. The gospel is for the whole world. In fact, most of the church of the world today is not Western, not American, not white. While it declines in America, it is increasing in places like China and North Africa. The hardening of Israel was purposed by God to bring about this greater salvation, breaking it loose from its original Jewish setting and showing that this is for everyone who believes in the name of Jesus, no matter who you are. It's surprising that God used hardening of the, of the Israelites in order to bring that about, but that's the way God works. He's counterintuitive. Now, before we leave this point, let me just add one thing by way of application. Many people have a hard time with the idea that God hardens people. It sounds unjust. So we're tempted to have hard thoughts about God tempted to think of him as some kind of a divine bully. But know this, God takes no delight in the death of the wicked. We know that from Ezekiel 33:11. What he does take delight in is saving more people. And we are the direct beneficiaries of his hardening action on Israel. He did it to save more people, to save people like you and me. So let's be careful not to charge God with wrong when we see him act in a way that doesn't strike us as right when we first read it. God is not exactly like us. We are in his image, but he is not like us. So remember that God's work is perfect and all his ways are justice. That's what Deuteronomy 32.4 says. Well, Israel's story doesn't end with hardness. Paul makes another point here, which is that Israel's hardening is not permanent. It's not permanent. Verses 13 and 14, we see Paul's explanation that more of Israel will be saved. It's his expectation. He says this, now I am speaking to Gentiles inasmuch then as I am a, an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order that somehow 
to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. So Paul's calling is an apostle to the Gentiles. That's, that's his field of ministry. He's, he's not going to spend most of his time with the people of Israel. He's always going out to new places. That's what God called him to do. But though he is directly going after the salvation of non-Jews, he is indirectly doing that in order to make his fellow Jews jealous and to save some of them. He didn't think Israel's hardening was total or that it was permanent. He was banking on saving some of them, even if it was indirectly the result of his Gentile ministry. That's another surprising way that God is saving his church. Um, how was Paul hoping his fellow Jews would be saved? By making them jealous when they see non-Jews getting saved. <laughs> Paul believed that grace-transformed lives are so attractive that the Jews would want in on that. And he expects that some of them will. He expects that the more grace takes a hold of people, some Jews will see that what they were seeking by works is actually found by faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, this attractiveness of grace was Paul's last point in his message to that Antioch synagogue. He said to the Jews that day, let it be known to you therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed from by the law of Moses. So he's saying, Brothers, righteousness by works is burdensome. Righteousness by faith in Jesus is freeing. So which one of those do you want, brothers? <laughs> Obviously, the latter. And there were some Jews who really resonated with that because their immediate response was the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. I just love that. They begged. Tell me that again. <laughs> Tell me about freedom in Jesus. Do you ever feel that way about the gospel, about your salvation? You can and you will. The more you give it your attention, the more you let the, the mercy of it, the freedom of it, the grace of it really impact your life. The more you become acquainted with Jesus, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, one who is pierced for our transgressions, one who is crushed for our iniquities, the more we realize what he's actually done, the love of it, the undeserved nature of it, that will make you feel free. It will make you transformed. It will shape you into a different kind of person who has what people in the world are looking for. Peace, significance, security, identity, a future and hope. Grace-transformed lives are attractive. And what do they look like? Well, they look like the woman named Dorcas in Acts chapter 9, who was full of good works and acts of charity, 
it looks like people described in the Beatitudes who are merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers. They look like husbands loving their wives. They look like children obeying their parents. It looks like people who have the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That's gospel attractiveness. Not to everyone, of course. Otherwise, there would be no persecution in the world. There would, there would be no persecution of loving, serving, genuine Christian people around the world. But to some, Paul says, some, they're going to be jealous. They're going to want that. They may be saved when they see that example. Grace transformation creates a, a jealous desire to experience what a believer has in Jesus. God can soften hardened hearts through the testimony of your grace-transformed life. Now, unfortunately, the opposite is also true. Our bad example can be a disincentive for anyone to believe the gospel. If we walk in unbelief, if we don't find comfort in the promises of God for ourselves, if we live no differently than unbelievers, if we're speaking and acting and thinking the same way they do, nobody is going to be made jealous of what we have in Christ because they already have that. But what they don't have is eternal life. And we do have that in Jesus. So friends, don't underestimate the saving jealousy that your life could bring to a non-believer. Don't undervalue the importance of your personal pursuit of joy and satisfaction in Jesus Christ. Your own joy in the Lord, apart from being good for your own soul, could become a potent attraction to the gospel for other people. They may not show it, that that's having an effect. Day by day, year by year, you might think this is making no difference, but you don't know that. You don't know what God is doing. God may be making them jealous and opening their hearts to him. So let me just sum up what Paul said so far this way. This is the surprising path of the church's salvation. Israel's hardening led to the salvation of Gentiles. And the salvation of Gentiles is now leading to the saving of Israel. And Paul will have more to say about that second half when we get the chapter to the rest of the verses starting in 25. Because God is not done with Israel yet. Now, before he speaks to that, though, Paul has something more to say to us about the hardening of Israel. There's a lesson that we need to learn from what happened to them. And the last point is that Israel's hardening should warn and humble the church. Israel's hardening should warn and humble the church. Now, whether it was intentional or accidental, I don't know. But I've given the hardest part of the passage the least amount of time to explain it, which is verses 16 to 24. Tim Keller says in his commentary that this chapter is one of the most difficult in scripture to understand. 
And I think these verses are a large part of why he says that. Uh, one can get lost in the metaphors of the dough and the olive tree and what they mean. I read two completely opposite explanations of what it means when a wild olive branch is grafted onto a cultivated tree. Um, and that's just the beginning of the theological debate in this passage. But I don't think that the main point of this section is confusing because on that there's a lot of agreement. So I'll just summarize the main point this way and then say where I get that from. Main point is that Gentile believers should not get arrogant about the hardening of Israel because it can happen to the church also. Gentile believers should not get arrogant about the harden, hardening of Israel because it can happen to the church also. That's the main takeaway from the olive tree metaphor, which is introduced in verses 17 to 18. So Paul says this, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Here's what I understand that to mean. The nourishing root of the olive tree is Israel's Messiah, the Christ, who is God over all, the one who comes from the race of Israel according to the flesh, going back to Romans 9, 1. Jesus is the true hope of Israel and the one who fulfills all the saving promises of God to his people. It would not be wrong to say that the nourishing root is the gospel of justification by faith, of which Abraham is held up in chapter 4 as an early example. Even the patriarchs of Israel were saved by faith and not by works. Justification by faith in Christ is the root that gives life to the tree, which represents Israel. Now in this olive tree, some of the branches were broken off, Paul says. These are unbelieving Jews. They are the natural branches that belong to the nation of Israel, but are not true spiritual Israel. As Romans 9, 6 says, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So as verses 20 to 21 say, these natural branches were broken off because of their unbelief. So God did not spare them. That is why they were hardened and condemned. Paul calls this the severity of God in verse 22. That means God's intense and just response to sin. But on the other hand, Paul says a wild olive shoot or branch was grafted in. It was grafted in among the others. This is Gentile believers. These are grafted onto the tree where they share in the nourishing root of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They become part of the true spiritual Israel, the people of God. Paul calls this the kindness of God in verse 22. This is God's kindness to you. Gentiles that you're grafted in. And the fact that there are still other natural branches on the tree which share the same root 
means there are believing Jews, the ones who are not cut off. Now that is a beautiful picture of Jesus gathering his people from both Jew and Gentile, which is exactly what they had in the church of Rome. So you have this tree and it's got natural branches that believe and it's got unnatural branches that also believe and now they're all part of the same tree. Now they're all in the church together. And that's who Paul's writing to. And that's something to celebrate. But Paul has a concern. And he says to the Gentile believers, do not be arrogant toward the branches. So you non-Jewish believers must not get proud that you've been saved. Now, why would they be tempted to pride? Verse 19 gives us some insights. It says, then you will say, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. In other words, I must be really special because God replaced unbelieving Israel with me. All that focus of God on Israel in the Old Testament is now on me, not on Israel. They're chopped liver. I'm prime rib. That's the pride to which Paul gives the stern warning. He says in 20 and 21, do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. That's the warning. Now, what does it mean? Well, it means the church can follow the same path as unbelieving Israel and end up cut off from Christ. Now, that's not saying that genuine believers can ever be condemned and cut off from Christ personally, because the rest of Romans rules that out. We know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, from Romans 8.1. We know that those whom God justified will also be glorified. There will be no dropouts between conversion and being in glory with Jesus. So this isn't a threat of a genuine believer losing his or her salvation. Paul isn't saying that, but what he is saying is that the Christian church, the visible church, can follow the same path as Israel if we start to rest on religion instead of on Christ. If we start to think that we're somehow special, that we deserve God's favor instead of recognizing that salvation is all of grace and only through faith. See, the church as a visible gathering of people going by the name Christian can go astray just like Israel did and drift away from justification by, by grace through faith in Jesus. And we see that today in the broader church in the West. My guess is that this is why the church is in decline in the West, in America, because we are like the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, to which the Lord said, you, know, you cannot bear with those who are evil, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. I think that describes the church in the West quite a bit. Um, it's entirely possible for a person's faith to be in religion, and not in Christ. Um, to look 
holy, to look churchy, to look Christian and not be Christians. And that is not saving faith. That's the person who ends up cut off from the tree. So here's the final takeaway. Let's never get used to the fact that we're saved. If you're a believer in Jesus, let's never rest on an idea that, hey, I'm in the church, so I must be okay. I must be good. God must, must love me because I'm in the church. Well, Israel did that, and they got cut off. Their branches were cut off from the tree. The only way to be in the tree is to, is to draw from the nourishing root, which is Jesus Christ, ever and always, to realize we've been grafted into this. He, he chose us by grace. He brought us in, not because we deserve it, but because of his mercy, because of his kindness. We can never lose that. Uh, let's not do according to Romans 2.4 and presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. If you're a believer in Christ, God has been kind to you, and that kindness should lead us to repentance. It should always remind us we don't deserve to be here. We don't deserve to have this. We do sin. And so we have to humble ourselves. He's calling us to humble ourselves. And remember, it's, it's kindness, it's mercy, it's free grace, not, not something that we deserve. And so let it create gratefulness in us um, that God has forgiven our sin. Let's follow Paul's counsel in verse 22. He says, note then, take note of, bring this to your mind. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. The way we continue in his kindness is to keep fresh in our minds how merciful and kind God really is and has been to us, that he's grafted us in. We were a wild, sinful, heading nowhere olive branch. And he says, I'm going to take you and I'm going to make you live. I'm going to connect you to the nourishing root of my tree. And you will live forever. Let's not forget that. Let's continue in the kindness of God and be humbled um, towards the Jews is what the, the immediate application was, but towards anyone. We can also think that because we're saved and not our relatives, we're saved and not other people like us, that maybe somehow that was because we were special. And we would, God would want us to know, well, I make you special. <laughs> because I desire to put my love on you, but that wasn't something you deserved. And so let's continue in the kindness of God. Let's remember how good he's been to us. And let's enjoy his kindness this week as believers. Let me close with prayer. Uh, thank you, Lord, that you found us as this wild olive branch and you said, I'm going to make you live. I'm going to give you fruit. I'm going to connect you to me. And that is a real mercy. So thank you for that. Would you encourage all of brothers and sisters who are hearing this and uh, let them know how good it is to have been rescued. And those who are 
outside of it right now, Lord. I pray, create a saving jealousy to have what you promise in your word for those who are saved. Life now and even better life to come. We ask you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.